It's a once-in-a-lifetime shot, old man. It's a once-in-a-lifetime shot. You've been waiting your whole life for this. You serve in a backwater town faithfully, but nobody knows your name. You're one of 18,000 who get a chance to at some point in their life possibly enter into the holy place. It's a once-in-a-lifetime shot, old man, is what you tell yourself. Your fellow Levites wouldn't tell that to you because they think the same things to themselves. It's a once-in-a-lifetime shot, old man. Better make it count. Yeah, I know it's a a once-in-a-lifetime shot, and I'm scared. The fear of God literally is in me. Because I'm going to a place where I may not come out again. Yet my whole life, yes, even my birth, my family, my tribe, I was born and raised for this. And now my time has come. But I have the fear of God in me. It's a once in a lifetime shot, Zechariah. Zechariah. All right, but let's say, let's say I go and I do my thing. Elizabeth's back home, old like me. No kids, no son. I go in, I do my duty in the holy place, I come back out. My shot is spent. Nothing to show for it other than survival and a good story to tell. But I'm afraid. I'm going to meet with God in a way that I have never met with Him before. And I'm afraid. At the same time, I can't really put a finger on what else I'm feeling. Alone, forgotten. Finally, I get my shot. But then it's going to be gone like that. You feeling like Zechariah at all these days? Do you feel like, man, it's been a, it's been a life well lived. I followed Christ. I've been faithful. But my shot is spent. I don't have anything left to contribute. His people seem to have forgotten me. Maybe it's even that God has forgotten me. Or maybe you're young. 
either young in years or young in the faith, and you think, man, it wasn't that long ago that I was zealous, that that fire was inflamed inside of me. I had great zeal for the Lord, and I, I had great expectations of Him, but life has laid me low recently. It's taking a one-two punch every other day, it feels like. Blindsided by who knows what. Those first months, those first years even, those were good years. I, I was walking with Jesus, and now I'm just stumbling, wondering where He actually is. I already feel like I've had my shot, and I just can't seem to keep up the momentum from that shot. If I'm really honest with myself, maybe I shot and missed. Now I'm like Zechariah, a spiritual wallflower, a has-been who never was. And I really don't think that my life right now is much different than it would have been if I had actually never encountered Christ in the first place. Who was this guy, Zechariah? Zechariah was a son, a great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Aaron. He was a Levite. He was one who had been born into the tribe of Levi to serve in the temple, Herod's temple by this time. He and his wife were barren, old and barren. He most likely served in a synagogue far out away from the religious life present in Jerusalem. But he was next in line chosen by Lot to come into the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place to burn incense on the altar. This is a line that had gone for 1,400 years, stretching back to Exodus, where Aaron and his sons were charged with burning incense on the altar. And so here he was. Here he was in Herod's temple. Alone. Standing. Just that side of the most holy place. At the altar of incense. An angel appeared to him. <laughs> he wasn't so alone. An angel appeared to him and said, Listen, Zechariah, you and your wife are going to have a son. And according to Luke 1, he says, Huh? <laughs> he says, How can this be? If you remember from Bill's sermon last week, we've been in the book of Exodus, well, Sermons over a long period of time. We've been in the book of Exodus. Last week he was in chapters 25 through 27. And he very well pointed us to how the tabernacle, the tabernacle 
symbolically points God's people back to Eden, to the ideal of fellowship with God, his presence, and it points us forward to the kingdom. All right? The tabernacle and its furnishings accomplish that purpose. And all this is delivered to Moses as he's on Mount Sinai, if you look at chapter 24 of Exodus. God gives him this big redemptive picture, this big story of what is his story from creation all the way through the culmination of the kingdom. But as we get into the text that we're in today, the the nature of what God explains to Moses shifts. All right? And the structure of the text actually shows it to us. So you can open up to Exodus chapter 28 this morning. Actually, flip back to 24, just so I can show you this structure quickly. Um, while you're turning there, I'll just, there's some, you know, when, when you watch a movie, normally you're expecting the high point, the apex, the climax to happen relatively towards the end, right? Then there's kind of a quick conclusion, the credits roll, and you're done. You're like, eh, that was a pretty good ending. I'm going to write the DVD later where it gives me three other endings to choose from. All right? That's not actually how Middle Eastern literature happened. Okay? In the Middle East, the way that they developed story, the way they developed contracts, covenants like Exodus is, is that they were more symmetric mountains. That was the structure. Okay? So that the climax was actually in the middle and then would spend an equal amount of time coming down on the other side. That's actually what we find here in uh, Exodus 24 through 31. In chapter 24 here, we have a narrative. This is Moses on the mountain. He's in the presence of God. That's the base over here. Let's see. We're moving left to right, so I'm going to go to my right hand. All right, we're starting here. We're a left to right culture. Starting here. Here is Moses at Sinai, narrative. It then moves to the next section, which is chapters 25 through 27, what Bill spoke on last week. This is the tabernacle and its elements and this strong, strong, strong connection to what was in Eden and what we're looking forward to in the kingdom. So that's the next step up. Then we find the apex of the text in chapters 28 and 29, You could call it the creamy middle. This is what we really want to see when it comes to these texts, all right? And we can't miss it. Let me just give you a little a little tidbit of what's going on there before we come back to it later. If we're dealing with the apex of this text, and we were just dealing with creation in the previous three chapters, the question to ask is, what is the climax, what was the climax of God's creation? The climax of God's creation was the creation of man. Where he took dust, breathed life into it, and stamped it with his image. That's the climax of all of God's creation. You and me. All right? 
And he endowed Adam, the first man, with the responsibilities of a priest. You might be saying, well, Adam was a priest? I, I hadn't really considered that before. Why would he need to be a priest? There weren't any other people for him to like receive confession from or anything like that. All right? A little bit off on your view of priest, if that's the only way you're thinking about it, but that might be your experience. Adam was a priest. Let me show you why. Listen to this real quick. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God gives Adam, the priest, these instructions. Work the garden, keep the garden. The Hebrew word for work, abad, and the Hebrew word for keep or guard, shamar, are the same words that God then uses later on in Numbers to give responsibilities to his priests, the Hebrew priests. So you see here, Adam was the first priest, and later on God gives his chosen priests, the Levites within Israel, the same responsibility. These responsibilities of working the garden and keeping or guarding the garden. The man's role is not only to be a gardener, but also a guardian. As a priest, he is to maintain the sanctity of the garden as part of the temple complex. Just a little sidebar here. I've heard from people sometimes, they're like, where do you guys, when you preach, where do you come up with all these juicy tidbits? All right. It's not that we sit down on a Tuesday morning and say, so let's gather all the juicy tidbits together. Bill, this is your week, so you take them all. Or it's not that we're incredible scholars. N- not at all. That quote that I just gave you from is just from the ESV study Bible. All right. So that's just an encouragement. If you want to begin and you need to begin getting in the scriptures, just get a study Bible. Begin to read carefully. Begin to allow the Holy Spirit to just move in and use his word to teach you. Not just juicy tidbits, but to teach you about himself. All right? So we see here at the apex, chapters 28 and 29, the priesthood. The the high priest, actually. Then we come down on the other side of that climax. Chapters 30 and 31, they're instructions for tabernacle worship. Go ahead and flip over there. And these fall into some different categories, but they match. See, the second step over here was the tabernacle. The the second step down over here is instructions for how to worship in the tabernacle. Okay? And these instructions fall into a few different areas. Number one, instructions for the priest. We see the altar of incense there. That's actually where, that's actually where Zechariah was in the temple of Herod. And now here it is in the tabernacle. And it's right there. It's this altar that literally was like a smoke machine. You would bring the incense in and burn it on the altar, and it would create a veil of smoke in this entire room because its purpose, its purpose was to veil, add extra visual security to the veil that 
kept people out from the most holy place where God actually was. And so there's this altar of incense here in chapter 30, and you get a sense there that there's a great degree of holiness there. But it's also God saying, I'm going to come and meet with you. I'm going to be in the holy place, the most holy place, but I need you to burn incense regularly on the altar of incense because because you can't see me. In fact, there will only be one day, and this text doesn't touch on it, but there will only be one day all year when the high priest will be able to enter the most holy place, and that's on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. All right? And so you get this sense here from the altar of incense that there's this separation. No, you can't see me, God is saying, but at the same time, I am going to come and meet with you. So be faithful in burning the incense. And in verse 8, it says, this regular incense offering will be burned throughout your generations. And it continued generation after generation after generation, save the exile period, until Zechariah himself was burning it in Herod's temple. If you go down to verse 17, you get this next instruction for the priesthood. And this is the bronze basin. The bronze basin was a place where, as we'll read in a couple minutes, uh, the, the high priest and his sons will already have been bathed fully before they put on their robes, their garments. But then just before they enter in to the holy place, this room, they have to use the bronze basin to wash their hands and to wash their feet. There's a certain propriety here. There's a certain correctness about, I realize that I'm coming with dirty hands and dirty feet. Even just the dirt that is represented by this courtyard here, I'm washing it because I'm coming in to the presence of holiness. What you also get here is the threat of death. See, we are coming down on the other side of the structure. the side of the structure that is more personal, that deals with people where they are, that deals with the reality of humanity, the reality of sinful humans needing to worship a holy God. And so you have to discuss the reality of death. And this comes in with the bronze bronze basin. Next on this step of instructions for tabernacle worship, we have instructions for the people. You have the census tax. Verses 11 through 16. Let me, let me read that. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. So the, the idea here is every person in Israel is being counted. It's a census. But they have to then give a ransom for their lives as if they've been enslaved or kidnapped. Give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement 
for your lives. There, there are two levels of worship going on here. Every time the leaders would choose to make a census, they had to know in their minds, when we issue the census, we are putting a responsibility, a requirement on our people to pay for what we are asking for. And so it brings, it should have brought a humility to the leaders. A reality that our strength is not in our numbers, our strength is in the Lord our God. And we may have a census, but when we do, we will be expecting our people to pay for what we would like to do as leaders. On the other hand, the people would say, our strength is not in our leaders. Our strength is not in the power of our people. Our strength is also not in our shekels. But our strength is in the Lord our God. It's a doubly humbling thing, but it also has this connection with ransom, with atonement. Atonement being the real reconciliation between God and humankind. That there was this something about this offering of money that demonstrated a willingness, a desire to be at one with God. And all that money went to the tabernacle. All right? They were contributing to worship. It was, it was not only a we, we are not trusting in our shekels, it was also saying we desire for the Lord to be among us. We are his people. Second instruction for the people is there at the end of chapter 30, starting in verse 22, going through the end. And this is for anointing oil and incense. It had been prescribed in chapters 25 through 27 that they needed this anointing oil, that they needed this incense. But now here we find out how it actually comes about. It comes about because the people contribute things for this act of worship. And it is their contribution that then is put on this sweet-smelling perfume. And it says here it's actually, it's actually put together by professional perfumers. This is their trade to mix together spices. And God gives them the precise measurements for what to use for a precise smell that he desires to smell. And then this perfume, this this anointing oil is spread on all of the items of the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself and Aaron and his sons. So Jeremy alluded at the very beginning of the service this idea that when, when anyone comes into the presence of the Lord, they must belong there. Okay? They must belong there. And we're going to see it further in this text, but this is one kind of peculiar way of understanding it, that a way we wouldn't expect, that God actually wants to smell a certain smell. Now, it doesn't mean you should run out to Macy's and find the tabernacle smell, all right? But there was this idea, there was this idea that God wanted everything, everything about this experience of worship to be precisely performed according to his specifications. And that everything from how things looked to how things were heard to how things were seen and even to how he smelled things would belong 
they would belong. So the people participated in worship. And if there was anything about trying to replicate, so definitely don't, don't go to Macy's. If there was anything about trying to replicate these smells, you could actually be cut off from the people. These were smells that were holy to the Lord. Chapter 31, which we won't touch on much now because Bill's actually going to come back to it for the very last sermon in Exodus later on in January, are about two gentlemen called Aholiab and Bezalel who the Lord fills with his spirit to do all of this work that he has prescribed. They're, they're master craftsmen. And then he finishes by prescribing the Sabbath. These are further instructions for how the worship of God is to take place among a sinful people so that he can actually be with them. They can dwell with, he can dwell with them and they can be at one. And so you see God taking these steps to make this happen. And then the final step over here is the, another narrative that matches Moses' narrative of being on Sinai. Now we see the narrative of Aaron, the high priest to come, pressured by his people because Moses has been gone too long. And Aaron, who will be the priest who is meant to work the garden that he has been given, maintain and guard the people that he has been given, instead capitulates and makes a small golden calf to be worshipped. That's the structure of these chapters. And we see this high priest in chapter 32 failing miserably. Even as God was giving Moses the instructions for the high priest and naming Aaron's name, Aaron is giving in to the whims of the people and the whims of his own heart down in the plains. What were God's instructions to his first priest, Adam, if we go back to Eden? His instruction was, besides to work and to guard, he said, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's an interesting thing when you go back to that portion of Genesis, when it describes the tree of knowledge, and the, the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the way it's described is this. That it says, the tree of knowledge, the tree of life, I'm sorry, the tree of, no, the tree of life was in the center of the garden, in the midst of the garden. And then there's like an extra clause just added on. And there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life in the center and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was somewhere. It's nonspecific in actually where it was in the garden. So, here you have, if we work backwards a little bit, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in the center of the people. God later gives instructions for how the people are to be arranged when they set up camp. In the wilderness, they are to be arranged very specifically around the tabernacle. With the Levites, along with Moses, 
arranged precisely around the tabernacle and all the people around them. There was a real order to worship that God was prescribing. The centrality of his presence. And if you work backwards to Eden, that's where it began. The centrality of life. The centrality of what God had given them to live was in the center of the garden. But we all know that Adam and Eve, wherever that other tree was, did not continue to just enjoy the tree at the center. They went to wherever else they needed to be. And so the role of the priest is to maintain the proper order of worship with God at the center of everything. But we know that Adam failed. He went to the tree found elsewhere. We know that Aaron failed. He made that idol. He went to an idol found elsewhere. And we know that we fail. Because we know that as much as we desire, as much as we desire to go to the central tree, be centered around the presence of God, we go to other trees. Our hearts take us everywhere but center, it sometimes seems. Our hearts need a high priest, one that will work in us and guard us for himself, one that will order our worship, one that will make himself central. Who is God's provision for this high priest. Let's look back at chapters 28 and 29. God has, as you would guess, some specific instructions for who his priests would be and what they would wear. Who is God's provision for a high priest in Exodus? Let's read chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him. From among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Remember that. For glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Then go over to verse 40 of that same chapter. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of the meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So who is God's provision? God's provision is a man of glory and beauty. 
He is a man of glory and of beauty. And if you notice there what it says in, in, um, sorry, verse three, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for the priesthood. It was the garments that made the man. The man didn't make the garments. So God says, I need garments that will make this man a display of beauty and glory. Second of all, he's a man without shame. I already read those verses at the end of chapter 28 where God prescribes these linen undergarments. It was underwear. Okay? They were wearing robes, but the priests needed underwear to go under their robes. Why? Because they would be going up steps. They would be doing things that could expose themselves. But the bigger why is that going back to the fall, mankind had been under the fall and under shame since then. And now God needed a man who was without shame. His nakedness was covered. He was secure in who God had made him to be. So we have a man of glory and a man of beauty. Next, we have a man who reminds God's people of God. Let's look at chapter 28, verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. See this, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. What is this ephod? What are these things on his shoulders? They're called stones of remembrance. Later on in the book of Joshua, you see a repeated reference to stones of remembrance and they were things that God told Joshua to set up so the people would remember who their God is and what he has done for them. And so now you have Aaron who will have these two stones on his shoulders so that when the people see him going in, they will say, he has my tribe on his shoulders. He is going in for me to the holy place. I remember that God has saved our people from Egypt. Those are stones of remembrance. He has saved me. He has saved us. Yes, we are his. So he needs a man who reminds God's people of God. And he needs a man who reminds God of his people. Verse 15. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment. 
in skilled work, in the style of the ephod you shall make it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, carbuncle shall be the first row. and the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And in the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of gold fil- of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seams above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. Do you think that God values this breastpiece? <sighs> Do you think there's precision, decision, purpose in this breastpiece? Yes, it is the breastpiece of judgment. Verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So here is this breast piece of judgment. A gem for each of the twelve tribes. Attached securely to the ephod. Yes, we are his people. Yes, they are my people. And the Urim and the Thummim that were in this pocket of the breast piece of judgment, these were, we don't know exactly, but they seem to have been things that were sometimes used by the Lord to decide his will on something. Were they dice? Probably not like we think of dice necessarily, but maybe something close. And the people would not say, well, this is a game of chance, kind of like a magic eight ball, let's roll the, the Urim and the Thummim. No, it would be more like there is the decision that our people need to make and they would bring out this to discern the word of the Lord for them. But in this case, in the breastpiece of judgment, the judgment has been cast. It has been decided and put away 
The judgment has come close to the heart of the holy priest, as have the twelve tribes that he is representing. And he bears them in the holy place before the Lord. The judgment is set. The judgment has been put away. And God says, yes, I remember these are my people. God also needs a man who goes into the holy place and does not die. Verse 31, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the, for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with, with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate alternating around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. Again, we already talked about the smell. This is the sound. If you're parents, you've probably seen those squeaky little toddler shoes where the toddler runs around and they squeak so that you know wherever your kid is in your house. Most annoying things ever. We never had a pair. All right? Because our kids made enough noise, we always knew where they were in the house. But here's the deal. Aaron puts on this blue robe. And it has pomegranates pointing back to Eden. And it has the sound of the bells. Not that God would forget or not know that Aaron was entering his presence, but so that Aaron would remember, I'm entering his presence. Even the sound of these bells are announcing my arrival into this place where I dare not come on my own. God needs a man, a high priest, who goes into the holy place and does not die. He needs a man who bears guilt and turns it to holiness. Verse 36, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So the people desired to give good gifts. They were told to give good gifts. But even those good gifts were tainted by sin. But Aaron was able to bring their gifts and announce, even as he brought their sacrifices and their gifts in, holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord. I think there's a point of application here for us. I think you may be thinking, I don't really have anything of value to add to the kingdom. Well, or maybe I do feel like I have something to add, but the thing is, the thing is, who I actually am, my gifts, my contributions, they should be rejected. I have no actual place to be giving what I have to offer to my holy God. Yet this priest comes in and bears the guilt of those gifts, bears the guilt of who the people of Israel are, who we are, and turns that guilt to holiness. 
God needs a man who is set apart to provide forgiveness. Chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread. Unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. There's that, that initial baptism as they're coming into the tabernacle. Then you shall take the garments that have all just been described and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head, put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. He will smell like he belongs. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung, its impurities, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So catch this flow. The people of Israel are a sinful people. God gives them a priest to bear their guilt and somehow make it holy. And then God provides a bull for them to then come in with their hands, put their hands on the bull, and the flow of sin goes from the people to the priests to the bull. This is a sin offering. This is reconciliation. This is propitiation where there is a punishment of death deserving on the people of Israel and by God's beautiful flow that brings reconciliation, this bull bears their sin. It is a sin offering. He is a man who is set apart to provide forgiveness. And he needs a man who is set apart to feast with God on behalf of the people. Verse 15, Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Go on to verse 22. You shall take also the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. This is actually ram number two. And one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these in the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. 
Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. So what is a wave offering? A wave offering was not this kind of wave or this kind of wave. All right, A wave offering was an offering of exaltation where there was food and the priests would just raise it up to the Lord. Now here, they do the wave offering, the parts of the ram, plus the food, the other food, and they burn it. But look at verse 31. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place, and Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They also would then have a wave offering They were making a meal. They were giving the Lord his portion by waving it, exalting it, and burning it. They would then wave their own portion and eat it themselves. Again, as we've been seeing through Exodus, the invitation of God to his people is not solely an invitation to have your sins forgiven. It is not solely an invitation to propitiation, to have the wrath of God written off. It is also an invitation to feast with him, to be family with him, to know him, to be with him. And we see that in these offerings. So he needs, we, God needs a man who is set apart to feast with God on behalf of the people. Because in verse 28, it calls these offerings peace offerings. The people would bring the rams and then the priests would eat them on behalf of the people for the purpose of peace. We need a man, God needed a man who makes his sons priests. Verse 29 and 30. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. This was not a one-time deal for Aaron and his four sons. This was something that would go on forever. A statute kept forever. There would be many, many, many sons up to 18,000 when Zechariah was alive, they would participate in the priesthood. And he needs a man who faithfully offers a sacrifice that God may dwell with his people. Look at verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year. Two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. So, we had been talking about the consecration, so this is these are these are things that don't happen as often. But now we come to the point where what is the day by day work of these priests? One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb a tenth sea of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hint of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hint of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar 
Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So this day-by-day offering was going to be a lamb in the morning along with the other food and a lamb in the evening along with the other food. This would be a regular offering before the Lord. It would be a food offering that also was a guilt offering, was also a sin offering, so that it was this daily reminder to the people, your sins are atoned for, come and feast with the Lord. The thing was, Aaron had just made a golden calf. The high priest had already failed. The high priest had already failed. Who did God actually need? Who did God actually need? He needed a high priest. And by God's grace, Aaron would still become the first high priest. After, even after the incident of the golden calf, God's mercy and grace were so great, so secure, that he still called Aaron in to be his high priest because he needed a man who was made holy by blood and oil. Verses 19 through 21 of chapter 29. You shall take the other ram. This is the ram that Aaron and his sons will eventually eat. And they shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take the part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. This was still going to happen to Aaron even after he made the golden calf. And what do we see here in the symbolism of the blood and the oil? This was anointing oil throughout the entire Bible. The anointing of God is associated with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing the high priests fail, but it is pointing us forward to a high priest who will be sanctified by his own blood, Hebrews tells us. And he will be full of the Holy Spirit. He will be fully anointed and fully holy, sanctified, consecrated, ordained. He will be the great high priest. He will be the sacrificial lamb. He himself will be the tabernacle of God dwelling with man. And all of this will come to culmination in a man named Jesus Christ. There will be a place in history, 1400 years after this, where there will be a man named Zechariah who comes in to the holy place full of fear because he knows he doesn't belong there of his own merits. He is trusting the process. He is trusting the fact that on the Day of Atonement, all of the people were atoned for. 
But just think about it. Think about it if you knew you had to go in there and in the back of your mind you're thinking, this depends on my sinlessness, my own holiness. Would you go in there? Would you trust God's word enough? Would you trust his process enough to take that step through the first curtain into the most holy place? Yet Zechariah did it. And there he met with an angel. As the incense, the smoke, is filling the, filling the room. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. And Zechariah is then rendered speechless because he did not believe that the Lord would give him a son. And all of Zechariah's life had been leading up to this moment. He had been faithful. Luke calls him righteous. This is not a man that was outside of God's will. He was just stuck in the holy place. That was as far as he could go. Was it a place holy, special? Definitely. But he was stuck in the holy place. He was stuck trusting this process and not trusting the priest. But Zechariah's very son would be the forerunner to this true high priest. Let me just take you to Hebrews to finish. Hebrews chapter 8. He says this, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We go over to chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. He was trying to finish his sermon too. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. Here's Zechariah. Performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. That's the Day of Atonement. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Or like Zechariah, you are still standing in the first section, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect 
the conscience of the worshiper. They can't make us clean. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He had a people that he needed to work in and guard, and he secured it at the cross. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Chapter 10, verse 11. And every high priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Zechariah can go into the Holy of Holies. You and I can go into the throne room of God himself. Christ, by his flesh, tore the curtain in two at his death. There is no barrier to access. We can go in with proprietary confidence with full boldness. I belong here. He has clothed me in glory and in beauty. I smell like him. I look like him. I sound like him. Not because I have made myself like him, but he has chosen me as a priest. I have now full rights to be in the very presence, standing at the mercy seat. Thank God you have had mercy on me. So what keeps us, what keeps us in our Zechariah stance? What keeps us fearing the presence of God when he's saying, I have done everything to bring you to me. Come. Come. Ask whatever you wish. Temptation comes, chapter 2, chapter 4 of Hebrews, read it yourself. Come boldly to my presence. No, but I get blindsided by stuff every day. Come boldly into his presence. What is there that's aching you right now? You have something you just can't deal with. It might not even be a sin or a temptation issue. It's like, I just don't know how this is going to play out in my life. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You are in the holy of holies. What else could you ask for? Your future is secure. Your present day is secure. I could drop dead right now 
You too. And it would be okay. You have been purchased by the great holy priest at the price of his own blood. And he is investing his process through the anointing of his Holy Spirit on you. Will you trust him? Don't look to follow a process. Look to follow a priest who has a perfect process to perfect you as a son and as a daughter. I don't feel very perfect right now. You are in Christ. Trust the priest who has a perfect process and is praying for you even right now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Endow us with the anointing of your Holy Spirit to trust you, Jesus, our perfect and great high priest. Amen.